I've been thinking about this topic for some time, but because of the sensitivity of it, I was reluctant to speak, nervous about saying the wrong thing. What gave me the impetus to talk about cancel culture was a question Reverend Alice asked during a sermon she gave in February. Would you rather be just or merciful? That question gave context to what I wanted to say. Some background for those of you who don't know me that well. In another life, I was a lawyer. I still think like one. And for five years of my 30-year career, I was a prosecutor and assistant district attorney in my county in upstate New York. I think we all have an idea of what canceling someone is. A person, usually a public figure, says or does something seen as sexist, racist, homophobic, or transphobic. Those comments are posted online, and many people will call out the behavior on Facebook, Twitter, or some other uh, platform. The person might be boycotted, lose a job, lose an elected position, and be subject to recrimination. Think of Senator Franken, forced to resign, forced to resign for inappropriate behavior with women, or Governor Northam, who was urged to resign because uh, he appeared in blackface over 30 years ago or Ellen DeGeneres for allegedly creating a hostile work environment. The list of public figures canceled is long, and there's many we have never heard of before, such as Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. I'm gonna talk more about him in detail in a minute. There is some pleasure in seeing somebody publicly shamed, especially someone who portrays themselves as this, but they're really that. But in spite of the pleasures that we, we get from that, I think that cancel culture or cancellation or public shaming is wrong and that we, as you use, should not participate. Public shaming is certainly not new or novel. In the 16th and 17th centuries, pillories and stocks were in widespread use. This is from a 2014 blog from the Wilshire and Swinton Center. It was considered to be a degrading punishment for with offenders standing in the pillory for several hours to be abused by fellow citizens, sometimes being pelted with all manner of organic material such as rotten eggs, mud and filth. If that was not enough, sometimes the offender was drawn to the pillory on a hurdle, which is a wooden sled, accompanied by minstrels and a paper sign hung around his or head, her head, displaying the offense committed. Cancel culture is the modern equivalent of the pillory on a far larger scale, degrading punishment, which in many cases is totally disproportionate to the offense. Now back to Dr. Lieberman, a tale which is not an outlier. John McWhorter is an opinion writer for the New York Times. In, on March 1st of this year, the Times published his essay, One Graceless Tweet Doesn't Warrant, cancellation. For those of you who don't know McWhorter, he is by profession a linguist with specialties in Creole and Black language. He earned a PhD in linguistics from Stanford. He is an associate professor of linguistics at Columbia University. In his wiki biography, he describes himself as a cranky liberal Democrat. He is Black. The essay relates the ordeal of Dr. Lieberman describing him as one of the most accomplished and respected psychiatrists in the world. Lieberman, 
in a tweet about supermodel Nyakim Gatwich wrote, whether a work of art or a freak of nature, she's a beautiful sight to behold. The word freak proved to be his undoing. I'm going to quote extensively from McWhorter's essay. Now I'm quoting quite a bit here. As the Times reported Wednesday, Lieberman has resigned from his position as executive director of the New York State Psychiatric Institute, was suspended by the university and will no longer serve as psychiatrist in chief at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Irving Medical Center. The day before he was suspended, Lieberman apologized in an email to colleagues saying that he had tweeted a message that was racist and sexist and contained prejudices and stereotypical assumptions I didn't know I held. And he was deeply ashamed and very sorry. He offered that an apology from me to the black community, to women and to all of you is not enough. I've hurt many and I am beginning to understand the work ahead to make needed personal changes and over time to regain, regain your trust. Note here, his understanding that the apology by itself was not the whole job that he had learned much from our current culture and was trying to do the right thing. But in this current culture, that's not enough. Even after his sincere apology for a single mistake, Lieberman probably won't be able to continue serving society, at least not as before as the brilliant doctor he is. Continuing from the essay, his swift sanctioning, accompanied by a Zoom faculty meeting that was attended by hundreds and included the head of the hospital describing his tweet as outrageous, appears to have been conducted according to a fantastical notion that Lieberman had called a black woman a freak, but he did no such thing. He used that word in the expression freak of nature, and that expression, regardless of what freak means by itself, was intended as a compliment. If you doubt it, consider that the supposedly offending phrase was bookended by the phrases work of art and beautiful sight to behold. Lieberman thought of himself as admiring Gatwich's beauty, and I assume that most people understand that, even if they won't admit it. McWhorter then goes on to describe how the word, how the phrase freak of nature is part of a culture of dehumanizing black women, starting in the antebellum South. But the essay goes on. But must Lieberman's career be destroyed because of a tweet that pretty clearly reflects an ignorance of that history, but that was also clearly well-intended? We're often told in such cases that what matters is not the intent of the perpetrator, but the impact on the recipient of the message. But impact has degrees. And we have to consider whether some are claiming vaster impact in certain cases than plausibility would suggest. Because we've reached the point that there's no room left to respond to Lieberman with nuance and prudence. To say, we know you meant it as a compliment, but you should know that th there are offensive connotations to using that word in reference to black women, an apology is owed. And then, crucially, to accept a sincere and full-throated apology when it is given, as it was here. For someone instead to almost instantly be suspended from one job, dismissed from another, and resign from a third because of such a thing is disproportion of punishment to crime. It is extreme and unnecessary and ultimately lacks reason. 
There is something amiss if we are now at a point that someone's career is to be permanently tarnished and perhaps ended based on a passing error, which started as a misguided attempt at praise and which has been profusely apologized for. We must assess what the actual purpose of this kind of policing is. We must ask what in terms of combating racism is accomplished. Will it result in better and more available psychiatric care or medical care in general for black people? Will it make Columbia University a more open-minded place? That's the end of his essay. I agree with McWhorter's assessment that this case, as it is in many other examples, that the punishment of cancellation is wholly disproportionate to the crime, that public shaming, shaming fails to consider the intent, the speaker's apology, and what is being accomplished by punishment. Commenting on cancel culture, President Obama said, Cancels, cancel culture supports a simplistic worldview and promotes the idea that a person is no better than the worst choice they have ever made. The world is messy, he said. People who do really good stuff have flaws. This example and many others like it that I read resonate with me. Perhaps it is because of my background as a lawyer and, a, and as a prosecutor. In criminal law, there's a concept called mens rea, the idea that one must have criminal intent to be convicted of a crime. We take for granted that punishment must fit the crime. Even in civil matters, we have a basic understanding of fairness and justice. Public humiliation is not part of the equation. Now I want to tell you another personal and very embarrassing story. There's a strip of cloth on the back of men's shirt, shirts. Back in my middle and high school days, that piece of cloth had a name that was extremely derogatory to gay men. I'm not going to repeat it. I know I used it in my teen years. The fact that I still remember it speaks to my continued embarrassment. My oldest and dearest friend is Jack Berezov. Jack and I went to school from third grade. My last name starts with B-E-N and his with B-E-R, so we sat one behind the other in grade school. We graduated high school together in 1967. We both attended Syracuse University and were freshman roommates in Watson dorm. 20 years after graduating from SU, uh, we, uh, well, we went our separate ways after freshman year, but have always stayed in touch. In 1991, which is 20 years after our graduation, Jack, who was living in Queens, held a mini reunion of high school friends. I went uh, to visit him in Queens with my late wife, Patty. I was chatting with old classmates and Patty was in the kitchen talking with Jack. After a while, she came out to me and announced, You know, Jack is gay. I actually, my reaction was, no, he's not. I would, <laughs> Patty told me that this was his coming out party. I was dumbfounded and happy all at the same time. To this day, I don't know why I didn't know he was gay, nor did it matter. Now, fast forward to pre-pandemic times. Debbie and I took annual trips to New York City between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Jack, who lives in Northern New Jersey with his husband, and I meet for lunch for each time we visit. In fact, we're gonna see each other in a few weeks. 
During our last meeting, which was in December of 2019, we were talking about some of his difficulties as a gay man. That moment was terribly cringeworthy. I asked Jack if I had ever said anything derogatory in front of him or to him and talked about the cloth tag. I was prepared to grovel for forgiveness. I told him how embarrassed I am now and that it is not me. He told me he had no such memory of me saying anything derogatory, which only slightly eased my mind. So I ask, am I to be judged? Of course, I've already passed judgment on myself. Am I to be canceled? What if I had spoken those derogatory words in my 20s or 30s and not in my teens? What if instead of a full-throated apology to Jack, I gave one of those non-apology apologies? You know, I'm sorry if my words caused you any discomfort. Does the life I have lived since matter? These questions are not dissimilar to the ones asked by McWhorter. Isn't the context of language important? Isn't the background of the speaker important? His or her prior accomplishments? Isn't the quality of the apology important? Isn't it important to measure the proportion of punishment against the crime committed? What is accomplished by banning, banishing someone from a profession in a community? And what of due process? With cancel culture, the judge, jury, and executioner are all some amorphous mob wielding pitchforks and torches of intolerance when what is needed is thoughtfulness and nuance. Politically, canceling someone is a perverse exercise of free speech, which has the effect of actually limiting free speech. How many have you not spoken for fear of saying something wrong? I know I have. Both the left, political left and right, have sought to restrict free speech. Progressives have led the movement to protect the rights of minorities and the marginalized. However, in the fight for tolerance, acceptance, and inclusion, many have become intolerant of any speech harming the people they have fought for. The right has taken up the call for limiting free speech. Look at the legislation restricting what teachers can say about America's racial history, or as in Florida, what teachers and students can say about sexual identity. According to those on the right, white people should not feel uncomfortable about their race, a literal whitewashing of history. All these limitations on speech are wrong. We would be better people if we could respectfully exchange ideas, respectfully talk about what we believe in, and yes, criticize without fear of recrimination. As you use, we generally adhere to several principles, several of which are relevant here. First, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Fourth, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And fifth, the use of, of the democratic process in society. And we at UUCL adopted a covenant of loving relations. We acknowledge in that covenant that we will have conflict. And in relevant part, we covenant with each other as follows. We treat each other with kindness and respect. We acknowledge mistakes and shortcomings, and we seek and offer forgiveness. In moments of disappointment, anger, and resentment, we strive to assume the very best intention of everyone involved. 
We agree that conflict is a natural part of congregational life. We step back and reflect on our feelings in time of conflict, and we refrain from disparaging one another. Imagine not just this congregation, but imagine all the people in this community. Imagine everybody in the county, in the state. Imagine everybody in the country living by this covenant. It's easy if you try. I will conclude by asking the original question, would you rather be just or merciful? I have come to the conclusion that this is not an either or proposition. I want to be and can be both. Amen. Maybe so.